Good morning. Let's look together at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We are in a section in the letter here where uh, he's covered three different topics. Well, this is the third of three topics. The first was uh, Christians, instructions to Christians on submitting to the government, which is never fun. The second was instructions on Christian slaves submitting to their masters and often... Uh, in this case, they're non-Christian masters. Today we come to the third section, and it speaks of wives submitting to their husbands, or what he specifically has in mind, mixed marriages where Christian wives are submitting or needed, needed to submit to their non-Christian husbands. I'm not going to apologize for this passage <laughs> about everybody that I heard or read about over the course of the week. They came to this, and it was almost like they were embarrassed that this section was actually in the Bible, because it cuts against every cultural grain of our day. I'm not going to apologize for it. What I want to do is, I've been trying to do this throughout the previous two sections, is think carefully and wisely about how this passage applies in the 21st century. To understand it... it, like all past parts of the Bible, you have to go back and set it in its proper context. Peter, throughout this, in this section of his letter, he doesn't want early Christianity to be misunderstood as a rebellious, revolutionary movement which is trying to overthrow the civil order. He, wants, he doesn't want to give any more ammunition to the non-Christians whereby they can undermine the message of the gospel or criticize the Christian faith. He's been saying that he wants us to live submissively within the structures that exist, the structures that are quite different in the first century than they exist today uh, in, in our century. For instance, I mean, we live in a democratic republic. We don't live in an imperial monarchy. We're a product of free market capitalism. We're not slave master, slave driver situation. And marriage, although we still get married, marriage was structured very differently back then. Typically, the married man would be anywhere from 25 years old to 35 years old. The woman would have been as young as 14. She would have entered into the marriage at a considerable power disadvantage. She would have entered into the marriage with a cultural expectation to adopt whatever religion that he served, whatever were his gods. If he bowed down before the Greek pantheon, then she was supposed to do likewise before Zeus. She, that was just the way the society was ordered. What we have here is a situation that is upsetting the order. A non-Christian wife converts to Christianity. Uh, Think of it this way. Think of a Muslim wife today in Iran converting converting to the Christian faith. That that is highly suspect, would it not? Uh, it It would introduce a great deal of tension into, not only into the marriage itself, but into the the entire social structure. 
This could be thought of as threatening to the husband. The husband might be subject to shame, the shame of embarrassment that his wife is no longer following uh, his gods. And as the wife would move out into other social circles, which were not her husband's traditional circles, out into the church, uh, you could see how this presented a, a very precarious Situation, and it's to that specific event Peter is speaking here in verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. You might be aware that the same kind of language is used by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, where he says, Christian wives submit to your, non, to your Christian husbands. That this is supposed to be part of the, the marital relationship. Before you reject it entirely as chauvinistic and misogynistic, just realize that it's the same language that's used about the inter-Trinitarian relationships between the Father, and the Son. What do we say in the Nicene Creed? We say that the Son is co-eternal with the Father. He is co-equal with the Father. There's not a hint of inferiority that the Son has with the Father, and yet the Son submits to his Father. I'm sure every one of us has seen instances where bad men take passages like this and use it in in wicked ways. But what I'm trying to point out to you is that it doesn't have to be that way. That in fact, this is what, this is how the Trinity itself works. The Son submitting to the Father. We'll talk a little bit more near the end of this sermon about how I think it fleshes itself out in uh, modern marriage. Verse 2. So that your husband, your non-Christian husband, would be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. I have members of my extended family who grew up in very fundamentalistic Christian circles who were taught and practiced that uh, the white women were not supposed to wear any makeup because the Bible purportedly forbid them from wearing any makeup. You maybe have seen Christians who say, well, the, this, this passage means that you shouldn't be wearing a diamond engagement ring. You shouldn't be wearing any gold jewelry, and you shouldn't go see a hairstylist. That's, that's not the best application of the passage, though. You need wisdom. See, the, ex, the external marks of beauty in their day were exactly what Peter writes here. This, the wearing of gold jewelry, braided hair, and fine clothes. He says, I don't want you to buy into the world's view of, of that as beautiful. What are the external marks of beauty in the 21st century? Well, it's the hourglass figure 
and the fashion that's prancing along the red carpet at the Oscars. It's the cover of Cosmopolitan magazine. Peter's contrasting the internal beauty of, of Christian character with those, that, the external categories, the world's assessment of beauty, which is entirely external. He says, don't, I don't want that, I don't want you to live enslaved to that. Verse 5, he gives an example of this. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. Very important. The Bible never says that every woman is supposed to submit to every man. It, it simply says that wives are submit to submit to their own husbands. Verse 6, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Sarah is a very interesting example. I'm kind of surprised that Peter chose Sarah as the exemplar to set before the church because you know the one time where Sarah completely obeyed Abraham was the instance where Abraham, as they were heading into, the, into Egypt, He said, make sure you tell them that you're my sister and not my wife. So she obeyed him. And what happened? She got sold into Pharaoh's harem. Is that what happens when you submit to your husbands? It's it's a strange strange exemplar, isn't it? But here's a serious question. Should my wife Erin submit to me exactly the same way that Sarah submitted to Abraham, in order to be a daughter of Sarah, as it speaks about here? Should she call me by an honorific title, like Lord or Master? Seriously. Because you, it says that you are her daughters if you do what is right and follow her example. And she called him Lord and, and Master. Is that, well, no, again, that would be a, a, a terrible application of the passage because, I mean, Back in their day, one of the ways that you would demonstrate respect is you would use an honorific title. If we're at a dinner party and I ask Erin to go, please pick me up a glass of punch, and she says, yes, my lord. <laughs> very, very awkward. <laughs> it's actually, it's interesting, though, that if you do exactly what it says you end up with the exact opposite result. I don't feel respected if my wife goes around calling me master. That's not how how it works. Should, Should wives obey their husbands exactly like Sarah obeyed Abraham? Well, of course not. That's not how, it's not how my marriage operates. I don't, what would she obey? It's not like we go around giving each other commands is it? I mean, the closest we get to a command in my house is if she's still working in the kitchen at the end of the day doing dishes and she shouldn't be. You know, make the kids go to it. Is That's the closest we get to a command. Verse 7. Here we turn to Christian husbands. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives... You're going to have to take my word for it, but the Greek verb here 
I'm taking the word of a Greek grammarian here, so maybe we're both mistaken. But the verb here has a connotation about to live with, it means to live with sexually. Live with your wives sexually and treat them with respect, with honor, as the weaker partner and as heirs with you with the gracious, of the gracious gift of life. What is he talking about? The, the women is the weaker partner. Again, this is not an instance of being chauvinistic. What, did, what have men done for, forever? They have used their strength in order to get their wives to, to meet their needs sexually, haven't they? That would have been especially true in the first century. And it's still true, true today. You, you physically dominate in order to have your own way. And he says, no, no, no. That, that will not characterize Christian marriages. You are to live with her sexually and emotionally and, and physically um, with, with being considerate, literally according to knowledge, being sensitive to your wife, who is the physically weaker partner, and yet heirs of, with you of the gracious gift of life, so that, we'll conclude, so that nothing, nothing will hinder your prayers. Well, we are now 13 minutes in. That's a long reading of scripture, but I thought it was appropriate to go through and kind of break it down piece by piece. What I want to, I want to jump through and talk to several different groups among us this morning, beginning with Surprisingly enough, the singles, you're not married. What I want to say to you is look at verse 3. Verse 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth to God. What makes character so beautiful? Peter gives us the answer. It's unfading. When we go into dating relationships, inevitably the very first thing we are concerned about is, are they hot? Do they turn us on? Are they, are they beautiful? And Peter says, it doesn't last. You know, look at us who are in our 40s or 50s or 60s with our graying hair and wrinkly skin and sagging double chins. It doesn't last. The most voluptuous female body that you can come across is going to be an ashen-faced cadaver in a coffin before we know it because it does not last. You know, we... (laughs) We enter into marriage with all kinds of unrealistic expectations, and one of them is that that infatuation we feel that is stoked by the beauty of that other person, that infatuation is going to last, and it's going to help us overcome all the problems that we're going to suffer through. Uh, Marriage psychologists tell you that's, that's not the case, that the infatuation, it... It goes away in 12 to 18 months. 12 to 18 months later, what do you have left? That's why it's so important for you singles to prioritize character when you are dating. There's nothing more important than does this person have exemplary character? Because at the end of the day, 
when it's not going to matter how beautiful they are. The beauty will fade. If, even if their, their beauty doesn't fade, it's in, I mean, women nowadays with, I don't know, all the Botox and stuff like that, you can keep your beauty much later into life. But what you singles don't realize is the effect of that beauty on you, it does fade. Is that right? And what is left? Be asking yourself this question when you enter into dating relationships. Does this person who I'm interested in, do they honor their commitments or are they flaky? Do they have a history of maintaining healthy relationships with other people? Do they have a history of healthy relationships with their, their mother and their father? And an, an important question, can they keep their hands off of you? Because if they can't exercise self-control right now, then they're not likely to exercise self-control in other ways once you are married. Your presence in the room needs to be unmistakable, not because you look so hot. It needs to be unmistakable because of the presence of Christ-like character, which does not fade away. The next group of people I want to talk with is, uh, is the wives here that are here this morning who are married to non-Christian husbands. I know that there are instances where you have non-Christian for Christian husbands who are married to non-Christian wives, but that's a rarity. It's almost always the opposite. Does this passage give you any encouragement and hope? I'm sure you've read it before. Does it feel, does it give you life when you read this? As God says that you have a silent power at your disposal, a gentle and quiet spirit has the power. He says it in verse 1. That you, that you are able to win them over. You may win them over without words by the behavior of your wives. That, that's happening around the world. It really is. That is happening in, in Muslim countries. That is happening in Buddhist marriages. That is happening in Hindu marriages. That one of the great stories in church history, we know about Monica, who was the mother, the famous mother to Augustine. Monica prayed and prayed and prayed for her drunk, dissolute son. Lord, bring him to faith. But what you might not know about Monica's story, Monica was actually married to a, an angry, pagan, Roman uh, man. A brute. He was an absolute brute. He sexually abused her and physically abused her and the kids. Uh, have you ever seen this in Augustine's Confessions? If you've read it, he, he talks about Monica's relationship with her husband. This, and here's, here's what he says. As soon as she was of marriageable age, being bestowed upon a husband, she served him as her Lord and did her diligence to win him unto thee, that is, unto God, preaching thee to him by her behavior. You, met, you made her reverent and amiable, and admirable unto her husband, and she so endured his wronging as never to have any quarrel with her husband, for she looked for thy mercy upon her husband, that believing in you, he might be made holy. And besides this, Augustine goes on and basically says, he, he was a man of terrible temper, but she learned to overcome his anger by her silent strength. 
See, arguably one of the most famous Christian wives ever. And no, it's, Peter's not giving a promise and saying, if you do this perfectly, then of course your husband is going to convert. But it just so happens that a gentle and quiet spirit is a powerful, powerful sword in the hand of God to slay an unbelieving heart. I, I, I've talked to wives who are married to non-Christian husbands in our church, and I, if you don't have a, a deep sympathy for what they go through, I mean, imagine being close to somebody where you look at the same world, but you don't see the same thing, where you don't share the same foundation in making any, any big decision. You have a different foundation on on how to make decisions, on what to value, on what's important and what is not. If you do, you feel for your brother, for your sisters, and the suffering that they must go through. Church, when was the last time you prayed for a non-Christian or a Christian wife married to a non-Christian husband, and you prayed that God would give her a persevering spirit to be gentle and to be silent? To be pure and reverent so that she might win her husband's heart for Jesus. And I want you to remember, uh, the last thing I say to you, you ladies is, I want you to remember that your weakness is your strength. That weakness is the one power category which is exalted in the Bible. Paul says that when I was weak, then I am then I am strong. He says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, that Jesus Christ was crucified in weakness so that he might live by the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1, that God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong things of the world, to display his wisdom and his power and his glory. Don't give up. Okay, Christians, husbands, and wives, we've got to get moving here. Husbands, what do you think that a Christian wife wants in a Christian husband? Ladies, you can correct me if I'm wrong in this assessment, but I believe that Christian wives want a husband who is loving, caring, understanding, who listens to her, who cares enough to get to know her, and who sacrifices himself for her which is totally different than the way the world talks about men and macho. Many men think that what a woman wants is for him to drive a fancy car and wear flashy suits. Any Christian woman would, wife would tell you that when the doors are closed, the doors of the house are closed, all of that disappears. And none of that matters. What matters when the doors are closed is that man's character. It also helps that if if he can communicate with you. (laughs) Wives want someone, they did not marry a mute mannequin. They they want someone who will communicate with them. They want somebody who will call them during the day and share an important piece of news because he just wants to share it. And maybe it's work news, but he'll share it nevertheless because he just wants to make you part of, of that portion of his life. On the other hand, Christian wives, what does a Christian husband want in his wife? I, the number one thing I hear again and again is, she, is we want somebody who will respect us. Somebody who will encourage our leadership. 
Someone who will honor us. Again, this is a broad generalization. But the woman who is constantly trying to snatch the reins from her husband and who wants to direct every area of life, who, wants, who undermines him in front of the children, who undermines him in front of their friends, is the Proverbs 27 verse 15 woman who, who shames and browbeats and complains and pesters and is like a drip, 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 a, a leaky faucet or a dripping faucet. But the, the woman that we, we all long for is the woman who will be our number one supporter and show us respect. I find it very ironic that God calls us to do the thing that is naturally most difficult for us to do. I mean, generally speaking, husbands are much better at giving respect and wives are much better at showing and, and giving love. But in Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul's addressing Christian wives and husbands, he says, you husbands, you love your wives, you wives respect your husbands, the very opposite of what we're naturally able to, uh, uh, best at doing. Now, on a basic level, of course, everybody needs to be loved. Everybody needs to be respected. The point is the emphasis, what God is calling you to emphasize is the place that you are naturally the weakest. The number one predictor of divorce, according to John Gottman at the Gottman Institute, uh, we've talked about him before, a secular psychologist, marriage counselor guy who has done a tremendous amount of research on the interrelationship between struggling wives and husbands. The number one indicator or predictor of divorce in America today is, you know, it's contempt. It's contempt. It's the rolling of the eyes, feelings of disgust, negative thinking, contempt for your spouse. The thing is, you don't get there overnight. They get to the point where you physically feel nauseated by your spouse. You only get there if if you've proceeded for such a long period of time without love and without respect, and and a long period of time where those two things go... uh, Completely, your sinful nature goes completely unchecked. I know that some people will say back to me, well, Brad, what if he's not respectable? My husband is not, he's not worthy of my respect. Well, what if he's not worthy of respect? What if he, what if he's lazy, a lazy bum? Or what if he works too hard? Husbands will come back to me and say, my wife, she's not very lovable. What if she's not? What if she's cold and demeaning and critical? That Well, that just... That absolves you from having to do it, right? (laughs) Now go back to the old C.S. Lewis quote where he says, this is mayor Christianity, isn't it? He says, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you do. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets of human life, that when you're behaving as if you loved someone, you presently, you will presently, come to love them. It does strike me that our relationship with our children is is complicated. When our children are not behaving the way that they ought to, when our children are, are behaving really badly, what do we do at those moments? Do we pull back? Do we pull away? No, we, we press in. But when our spouses aren't behaving the way that they ought to, what do we do? We pull back or, or do we press in? We, we pull back. Well, maybe that explains then why we have such 
different uh, reactions towards our kids. Our, our hearts are so bound up in our kids. Do you ever notice that? Like, it doesn't matter how they behave. The, the, the little kid can, that guy can be a hellion. And yet, I find that my heart is so bound up with them, I will love them no matter what. When you act lovingly over and over towards someone as unrelentingly as you do your children, you start to feel this incredible love for them. You're like, I would do anything for them. I would never give up on them. Isn't it interesting that we normally do not feel the same way with our spouses? Probably because we have bought into this whole cultural notion that you must feel love in order to give love. You must feel respect. Our culture says that feelings of love and respect are the basis for actions of love and respect. But it's much truer, at least according to the Christian view of things, to say that actions of love and respect lead consistently to feelings of love and respect. Because we have far, far more power and control of our actions than we do our emotions. Let's go back to verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. I, I, when I started to read this, I know the reaction for a number of you in here. When you hear that, it makes your skin crawl. It's not, not only is this outdated, antiquated, but this is misogynistic. This is repressive. Let me point, give you a, a very pointed question. Back to you. When was the last time? When was the last time that God disagreed with you? When was the last time? No, seriously. When was the last time you read the Bible and you thought, "Man, that cannot be right. That's not how I was taught. That's not how I was brought up. That's not what my friends believe." When was the last time, like God, flat out said something to you that you thought, "No way." See, as long as God agrees with me, it doesn't say much about my discipleship. I can be obeying God as a matter of convenience, but it's at places like this where our discipleship is really put to the test. I I hope I did a good enough job in original reading of the passage to say that you would be a fool to to try to apply this in a one-to-one. Like, let's recreate the first century marriage and do it. No, 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 no. It, it requires wisdom. But for those of you who, who truly, your skin crawls when you hear this, don't reject it out of hand. This is where God wants to work with you. This is where, you know, discipleship rubber beats the road kind of stuff is supposed to happen. So what does submission look like in the 21st century marriage? If you were to ask Aaron Cheney, what does submission look like in our marriage? Honey, what would you say? <laughs> I didn't run that question by her beforehand. I think what she would say, I hope what she would say, is uh, there's a ton of mutual submission that is taking place. If it's an area of expertise for her where she's the best, we follow her and I don't even think twice about it. Likewise, if it's an area, a, a matter, a concern where I'm uh, particularly gifted in, then we don't think about it. We, I would guess that over 19 years, we're almost at 19 years of marriage, I could count on one hand 
the number of times where we came to a critical juncture in the road and I said, uh, let's take the job in opportunity in Boston. And she said, let's take the job opportunity in Miami and where we, just, we were at an entire impasse. And at those moments, we've decided that the buck stops with me. And we'll go, rightly or wrongly, two, maybe three times in 19 years. And the thing is, is ours is a traditional marriage. Yet, you shouldn't ever need to play the, the submission trump card. If you're at the point where you've got to play, tell your wife to submit, dude, the, the train has gone off the tracks long, long before this. I mean, the Bible never actually says that husbands are to make their wives submit. God forbid, no. And the idea here is not that my word is law and you know, the woman will... No, I, that's garbage. I mean, the number one responsibility of, hus- of Christian husbands is, is what? It's to lay down your life for your wife. Self-sacrificial love for your wife. Uh, and if your tendency, guys, is to go home and use this, this verse of the Bible to justify selfishness, you know, I'm the leader and my word is law. Um, no, you're 180 degrees wrong. I, and wives, if your tendency is, to, is just to push this out of the way and act like it doesn't exist, you're missing out on a critical moment, a good moment for discipleship. Guys, did you realize at, verse seven, at the end of verse 7, has it ever occurred to you that your prayers may not be answered? Your prayers might not be answered because of the way that you're treating your wife? That, is, that goes against the grain of the way that we think. We think every Christian, every Christian sort of prays at the same effective level because every Christian is able to pray in the name of Jesus And every Christian is invited to the throne of grace, and there we can make our petition in time of need. We're all, as long as we pray the same thing, we're both effective or equally efficacious in our prayers. That's not what the Bible says. It says that maybe the way that you're treating your spouse has actually created an invisible barrier between you and your heavenly Father. And you need to repent. Finally, Let's conclude here. What does the Bible tell us about division of labor in the home? What does the Bible tell us about who does the cooking and the cleaning and who earns the big paycheck, who's the big breadwinner? The Bible says pretty much nothing about those matters. You may be absolutely convinced, as I am, that a a husband is supposed to cut the grass and a wife is supposed to do all of the interior decorating because that's how it works in my home. But you didn't get that from the Bible. The Bible doesn't have, as best I can tell, anything on the, the traditional division of labor. It doesn't say anything about who needs to get up in the middle of the night with the baby. Amen? <laughs> or who needs to be the primary breadwinner? Or who needs to drive the car to church on Sunday morning? But the Bible tells us everything about the need for love and respect, the priority of character, and the goodness of marriages, which enhance the reputation of the gospel before the watching world. Amen.